How you feel about money has a big impact on your income. Getting your head straight about money and what it means to you is the first step of building any kind of success outside of what you normally feel as normal. That is what you want, isn't it? This week, my guest is money mindset coach Jaquette Timmons, and she's going to help me discover new ways of looking at business, money, networking, and relationships. If money matters to you, then this is a must-listen episode. Hi there, and welcome back to Amplify, the digital marketing entrepreneur podcast. I'm Bob Gentle, and every week I'm joined by amazing people who share what makes their business work. So if you're new to the show, take a second right now to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes, and you can grab some older ones when you're done with this one. Don't forget as well, you can join my Facebook group. Just visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders, and you'll be teleported right there. So welcome along, and let's meet Jaquette. So this week, I am thrilled to welcome Jaquette Timmons to the show. Jaquette is going to talk about a subject close to my heart, and I'm very sure is close to your heart too. But Jaquette, maybe for the listener who doesn't know you, if could you maybe just, just start by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and most importantly, what you do? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much again, Bob, for the invitation. And I'll start with the shortest part of your question in terms of where I am. I am located in Brooklyn, New York. And as we are recording this, it's a very odd day in November in terms of uh, the weather. (laughs) It's normally really, really cold. And lately it's been in the 70s and today it's in the 50s. So there's that. Uh, In terms of what it is that I do, I work as a financial behaviorist. And for those for whom that term may not be familiar, my you know definition of that is that I focus on and center the human side of money. So I get people to pay more attention to their behavior, their choices, the motivations behind them, as well as the emotions that drive all of that, while at the same time looking at and evaluating the numbers. And a lot of that comes just from experience and observation and my educational background that really, from my perspective, proves that if success with money were purely a mathematical problem, you and I would be talking about something entirely different. (laughs) But, you know, I, I love to use the example of if I give everybody a dollar and ask them what did they do with it in 30 days, I'd get however many people I gave a dollar to, I'd get probably that many different answers. And so that really speaks to the fact that, you know, money is not the the tool of money is universal, but the experience of it is not. And how my work as a financial behaviorist shows up in the work that I do is I have three pillars to my business. I do one on one coaching primarily with entrepreneurs and small business owners. And I'm either coaching them on their personal finances or that and doing business coaching as well. So we're looking at their business model, their sales process and their pricing strategy. And we're making sure that there's a connection between the health of their business and how that's translating into the health of their personal finances as well. The second arm of my business is I'm a for hire speaker. So Fortune 100 through 500 companies will hire me. Uh, AM Law 200 firms will hire me. Large conferences, boutique conferences, nonprofit organizations, and even peer, you know, 
business owners like coaches um, as me will hire me and I may be going in to deliver my signature talk, which is financial success doesn't start in your wallet. I may be delivering my pricing workshop inside their mastermind, or I could be sitting on a panel. And really at the end of the day, regardless of the scope of my appearance, I am being brought in because of my particular stance of always making sure that we are adding to the conversation about numbers, the psychology and the emotions of money as well. And then the third arm of my business, I host events. I have a dinner series called The Comfort Circle, and that is where we get together to talk about money, business, and life over food and wine. And up until March of 2020, that was always at a very lovely restaurant here in New York. And uh, right now, until further notice, it will be virtual. And then the other thing, and I've already kind of alluded to it, is um, I host a pricing masterclass once a quarter. And that's really designed to help people price more confidently, strategically, and profitably. But my particular approach to pricing is that I tackle it from three sides, the financial, the emotional, and the personal. And I do that by helping people examine their relationship with money, the relationship that they have with themselves, with their business, and that the people that they serve. Very comprehensive introduction. And I think listening to that there's so many places we can go but one place i would like to start is most people listening to this are probably business owners there'll be another proportion of people who aren't their employees but actually they'll have the same issue that as a business owner you have two levers you can pull there's the money you charge and then there's the money you spend that's pretty much it obviously there's a lot more to it than that but you're right when you spoke about money and you were saying financial success is not all about numbers a lot of it's in the head something that i found quite universal it's obviously not entirely universal there are exceptions to this but so many businesses businesses and business owners they live hand to mouth so they spend pretty much everything that comes in it doesn't seem to matter if they're teeny weeny businesses bringing in 500 a month or great big businesses bringing in 50 grand a month it's all relative, obviously, but there's often very little profit left in there. So getting that straight, there's a huge opportunity for people, but there's lots of psychological issues there. But then the other lever you can pull is what you're charging and how you're pricing things. And I think a lot of people have a lot of issues around that as well. There's a lot of learned experience. And I was speaking to Daniel Priestley earlier today that's a huge name drop if you if you know Daniel Priestley I have spoken to him today so I'm dropping that name <laughs> but he was talking about normalization that for certain people certain expectations are normal so for, if for one person it's quite normal that their business should be doing a million a year whereas for another person that's completely alien so again there's a lot of psychological issues around income as well as expenditure where do you find when you're working with people especially business owners, you can have the biggest impact most quickly. Well, if I piggyback on, you know, how you just kind of laid the groundwork in terms of the levers, one way of having the greatest impact when it comes to the idea that some people have that when they have more, that they will all of a sudden do something differently with money. And it's one of the reasons why when I do a workshop, I actually do use the example of, you know, if I give you a dollar and 
you know, ask you to come back and tell me what did you do with it in 30 days. It's one of the reasons why I very specifically use a dollar to kind of pinpoint for people if you rolled your eyes and said, you know, really, you just gave me a dollar to kind of highlight for them what you do with a dollar is exactly what you will do if that dollar was a hundred, if it were a thousand, if it were 10,000, if it were a million. You don't auto magically, as I like to say, become someone who's going to do something differently with more if you're not already doing it with what you have. So the, you know, the example that you used with regards to spending and, and hand to mouth, for those folks that think that, oh, when I get more, I'll no longer, you know, operate in this hand of mouth mode, that's untrue unless you are really putting up guardrails to make that true. Like it's not going to just happen simply because you are earning more. The other thing that's related to that from my perspective anyway, is I really believe, and I believe this, whether it's a business or, or on the personal front, that every expense that you have, it needs to fight for the right to be on your income statement. And I think far too often um, people are not as disciplined at that, especially when it comes to you know the types of services that you know as business owners tend to use and how probably all of them are on subscription based platforms, which is really good for whomever the provider is, but not so good if we're not really evaluating, are we getting the return on investment from that tool that we were anticipating? So that's my answer to the spend part of the lever that you kind of set. But to piggyback on what Daniel Priestley said with regards to the normalization. So A, I've wrote that name down because I'm not familiar with his body of work and I definitely will look him up. But this idea of normalization, you know, it's really interesting when I talk to clients about pricing, one of the things that I will give as an example of what makes pricing hard is our tendency to project. So we will project our buying behavior and our relationship with money onto the people that we're trying to connect with. So your clients, your customers, and your prospects. And so something that you say, oh, I would never spend that much on X, or I would never buy Y. You presume that your people that you're trying to connect with have the same sentiment, and you could be extremely wrong, and because of that, leaving a lot of money on the table. So I think it's important for people to ask themselves the question of, am I projecting or am I, or where am I allowing something to be normal that actually might be stunting my growth? I think what you're really saying there is financial success is an inner game. It's not about money. That's really interesting. It is. And, and I think it starts there. I, I think, you know, the results that you see are often the results of so much that is invisible to other people. I think I heard Dave Ramsey say something the other day. Occasionally the Dame Ramsey podcast is on in my house and he was talking to somebody who was about to start a business and he gave this piece of advice and it was, there is a whole industry out there whose sole purpose is to separate you from your money as a business owner. And that was a really interesting way of putting it. The more money you have, the more opportunities there are to spend it as a business owner. And like you said, you really have to put some guardrails up around that. So when you're working with people, if we start with your sort of your practice, so to speak, how are you engaging with them? <laughs> you might be surprised by my answer, but I always start with the personal finances first. 
I make no bones about the fact that when I am working with someone, yes, I absolutely want their businesses to be successful. But for me, a part of that is making sure that your business is also taking care of you personally. If someone's listening and they're like, well, what do you mean by that? You can have a business that by a variety of metrics is is successful. It's successful because you've got a flow of sales. It's successful because you're cash flow positive and you're profitable. But if that success is not trickling down and having a positive impact on the health of your personal finances, then my question would be, are you really successful? (laughs) And the answer to that is no, if it's only partially so. And and when people are like still, you know, questioning, like giving me that quizzical look, like I'm not really seeing the connection, I'll hone it in by asking this. Are you paying yourself? Are you paying yourself consistently? Are you paying yourself as much as you could, giving how well your business is doing? And if you aren't, is that a strategic move? If you took some money from personal savings to either start your business or to get it through a slump or to help take it to the next level and you haven't paid yourself back, or if you put pause on long-term savings and long-term investing and your intent was to only do it for a short period of time, but now we're several months into that or maybe even several years, if you've answered yes to just one of those questions, what that means is that you have not set it up so that the success is on both ends. And so when I work with people, I start with the personal finances because it's all about how do you want money to work for you in your personal life? What's the financial vision that you have for it? And then we look at if we change nothing about your business, would it be possible for you to fulfill your financial vision? And many times the answer to that question is not. And so then we go through a process of, you know, tweaking the business model, the sales process and the pricing strategy so that in time it's, ne- it's not going to happen overnight, but it's about, a, you know, putting together a game plan of progression over time. You do have that connection in such a way that every business decision that you make integrates your personal financial needs and wants as well. And it's not just about survival. It's about thriving. I love that. And I think too many people separate business finances and personal finances. If you're a business owner, they're the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, that just yeah. makes so much sense. Absolutely. And I think, I think the problem, or not the problem, well, yeah, it is a problem. What happened is people mistook the necessity of having separate business accounts, you know? They took that to another extreme. <laughs> They also took that to mean that I need to think about these things separately. And it's like, "Mm, no, not exactly. I think a lot of people are probably listening, shaking their head in a slightly embarrassed way because I only deal with business owners in my business. I have done for nearly 20 years. And it's very rare that I can point at a business owner and say, that guy is thriving. It's very, very common when people are having their candid moments, even when their businesses outwardly are very successful. Mm -hmm. They have been on a hamster wheel of getting by personally Mm -hmm. forever and they become accustomed to it yes it's it's like the puppy that's just becoming used to the electric shocks they just don't notice it anymore right but it's not right right and it's not necessary right so a lot of the time it'll come down to what you're spending but a lot of the time it comes down to pricing and you were introduced to me as the pricing ninja so (laughs) let's talk about pricing sure where are people making the biggest mistakes on pricing and where can they find 
the easiest wins. Now, obviously, I'm I'm being intentionally cavalier here because there's a process that you would go through with somebody. But pretend I have a million listeners, you can't work with them all. So in terms of self-help, what could people be doing or to, in order to shine a light on some pricing issues they might have? I think one of the very first things is to examine how did you come up with your current pricing? <laughs> like what was your approach to that? And that will give you some clues as to the degree to which you're leaning into approaching pricing as if it were a very logical and mathematical formula when it isn't, right? Money is not logical and mathematical. Um, it's very emotional. And so therefore the pricing piece is too. So I think first, you know, kind of doing a debrief and examining what was your approach to pricing in the first place. And I, what I would suggest people do is think about what was going on when they started their business. Because, you know, for a, a vast majority of people, there are really key four, four key ways that people start their business. They're either working full time and they started as a side hustle and it gets to the point where it can, you know, be on its own two feet. And so they make that transition. Another way is they get downsized and either they had a side hustle or because they've, down, they've been downsized, they're like, I'm going to use this severance period and, and hopefully severance money and use that as an opportunity to really give my all to this side hustle or work on this idea that I've had. Another way is maybe, you know, your husband, your wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, if you live together, you know, is able to cover the household expenses. And so you start your business and your business doesn't have the pressure on it for needing to take care of your livelihood. Or maybe it's the case that you come from a wealthy family. And because of that, again, you can start your business without it having any pressure. I pass no judgment on any of those ways of starting a business. They're all really valid. But be really clear that how you start it probably shaped your approach to money, your approach to pricing, what you thought you could charge, what you thought was reasonable. And that is something that a lot of people don't in subsequent years pause to examine. Am I still doing what I did when I started my business or what tweaks have I changed in terms of my approach? Because just increasing your pricing doesn't mean that you've changed your approach or your mindset when it comes to pricing. So that would be one of the first things that I would suggest people do as a way of kind of unpacking what they do and why. I think around pricing, there's often a lot of fear and it's a, it's a fear of rejection, I guess. It's like any other sales process. Biggest fear is somebody's going to say no. And a lot of people's pricing is based on where do they think the pain threshold is? And if people are honest, they're pricing to the other guy. So what is what the guy down the road charge? Well, he charges that, so I have to charge this too. But what that doesn't take into account is marketing, your ability to reach people. It might be the guy down the road is charging that because he has a very small catchment area and that's all he can charge. But if you can reach more people, if you can reach the one person who you're perfect for, then price is no longer relevant, I guess, to the same extent. So to what extent... Does marketing come into this conversation? Does my question make sense? Yes, it does. And I, I want to take it, we probably may be saying the same thing, but just differently. So for me, it absolutely has to do with marketing. But I also think a good chunk of that has to do with audience. So, you know, your, your comment about um, the fear of the rejection, that 
absolutely is real because it's hard for us to hear no. And yet what we don't realize is the feedback that's embedded in that no as well as that yes. The feedback when we get the yes is like, oh, I got my perfect person. And I think what would be really helpful is if people took a step back and thought about all of those yeses, like what is it that those people have in common or what is in common in terms of your connection to either the people or the scope of work that you're doing with them. And then in terms of replicating that, and this goes to your marketing piece, where can you go to replicate connecting with more people like that? Because just because someone said no, it doesn't necessarily mean that your pricing is wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that the elements of your offer is wrong. It could just simply mean that you were talking to the wrong person about that offer. And so are you tracking that? Are you tracking your yeses? Are you tracking your noes? Are you tracking who said no and why? And if you're not, that's something that you wanna get better at doing because in that is a lot of insight that will help you to move forward, but move forward with some more insight and also change your relationship with rejection. And if I can share a quick story about fear. I, 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 I don't think fear is bad. <laughs> um, I think fear can be your friend. I think fear can tell you a lot. And I, I adopted this notion actually when I was doing uh, my checkout dies for my scuba certification. I was in Tortola and um, to do the NAUI certification for the particular depth that I was going for, you have to do seven checkout dives and it's over a couple of days. So my first dive um, went really, really well and it was um, a, a jump off, off, the, off the boat. And then the second dive was a backward flip. And I, I don't know, to this day, I don't really know what happened. I just know that when I hit the water, I was so discombobulated. My regulator came out. My mask, you know, got dislodged. It was, it was like a, a mess. And they got me calmed down, calmed down enough so that I could actually go beneath the water and demonstrate my skills. And when I came back up and we were resting um, between the next dive, the dive master said to me, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to you. She said, the next time you get on a dive boat and you were not a little bit afraid, that's the day you don't go diving. And her whole point was, your first dive went really well, and so you got a little cocky. And so you didn't do a lot of, like all of the checks to make sure that everything was okay. So when you are afraid, her point was, when you are afraid, it's okay, because it will prompt you to ask questions. You know, is my regulator? How's my jacket? How's my mask? Like all of those kinds of questions that in that instance could potentially be life or death, literally. So for me, when people are afraid, my suggestion is don't try to repress it. Don't try to say you shouldn't feel afraid. Engage in a conversation as crazy as that may sound. Engage in the conversation and say, hey, are you trying to protect me from something? Or are you trying to highlight for me that there's a question that I didn't ask or there's a step that I've overlooked and I need to be mindful of a potential landmine? So I don't think fear is bad. I just think how we engage with it needs to shift in order for it to work for us. I love that. And I think if if you're not experiencing fear in some way, I think you're probably not trying hard enough, mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything worth having 
is sort of behind a door with fear written over it. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Because it's almost like testing you, right? It's haunting you. Are you going to be brave enough to come through that door? <laughs> well, it's about growth and comfort zones expand over time. But that process of expansion is uncomfortable. Yes. And that's where the fear comes in. Now, there are a few things you do that are, frankly, I find a little scary. And you do a lot of speaking, but I notice you also do a bit of TV, which I look at and I think, holy cow. So I have two questions. What was the journey that moved you into that? Yeah, A, how did it happen? But B, and this brings me back to my previous point about being in front of the right people. If you're in front of the wrong people, you're not going to be able to sell at the level you want to. But if you are in front of the right people and enough of them, you can do well, you can thrive. Now, you are in front of a lot of people, probably the right people. And I'm curious to know how you did that and just the story around that. Yeah, thank you. So I had been on TV a couple of times before my book came out, but it it's really when my book, Financial Intimacy, How to Create a Healthy Relationship with Your Money and Your Mate came out that my number of appearances really, really, really grew and repeat appearances <laughs> even more so on you know outlets like CNN, HLN, Good Morning America, et cetera. And so you know th the genesis of it, like I said, was my book coming out and it wasn't just the book, it was the conversation that I was instigating. And so I, in the book, I explore the intersection of love and money. And I take a social critics view of it, looking at, you know, how has everything changed? And when I say everything, how has, you know, um, how have things changed socially, culturally, economically, familially? Like how have those things changed over the last 40 years? And how have those dynamics influenced and affected how people show up in relationships in general, but especially around money? And how does that affect how couples do or do not <laughs> get along when it comes to money? And the, the inspiration, if you will, for the book was really triggered by three things that had they happened with some space and time between them, I probably wouldn't have noticed a connection, but they happened you know, back to back as a stack, if you will. And I am someone that tends to be an observer, A, and B, I'm always looking for patterns. So the first thing that happened was one of my dearest friends uh, was who was like a, a brother to me, and I'm a single child, so that was a really big deal. Um, he was married to my college roommate. And uh, sadly, he died unexpectedly from a brain aneurysm. And you know, luckily he was a good, you know, stand-up guy. Um, but there was a lot that she did not know about his finances because while they had been together since we were in college, um, they never commingled their money. So that's one instance. Another friend, her father died. And when her father died, that's when her mother discovered that the family was $500,000 in debt and that wasn't their mortgage. And then on the heels of that, I was working with Ooh. a coaching client who on paper was like the epitome of financial success, a Wharton MBA, working on Wall Street, high six-figure salary, and yet she fought all the time with her boyfriend about money. And 
like I said, if, if those three things had happened with a great deal of time in between them, I probably wouldn't have had the question that I ultimately had. But my question was, what is it that the smart, college-educated, some with double degrees, uh, women are not asking when it comes to money with the person that they're the most intimate with? So that began the inquiry. <laughs> Um, and, and that's, that's the question that I wanted to explore and that I do explore in the book. And so that's where a lot of the media attention came from because I was, you know, having that larger conversation around the intersection of love and money, but embedded in that is our own individual relationship with money. And, you know, for context of time today in 2020, that may seem like, oh, we have that conversation all the time. But you got to think about my book came out in 2009, which means that I had been working on it. I got the book deal in 2007. So I'd been talking about this when there wasn't that many other people talking about it. <laughs> so it was yeah. really a combination of those two things that uh, got me the media exposure. And in terms of TV, yeah, obviously, I know I'm on television. But I just focus on the person or the people that I'm in the studio with. I guess it's probably easier than public speaking in many regards because there isn't a big crowd of people. Yeah, I can I can see that. I don't know if it's easier. Um, I just feel like, you know, you know, you know, a million people are looking at you. But um, I don't. yeah, I don't know if it's easier because <laughs> either and either, especially as if, it, if it's live TV, like you don't know. <laughs> And in that regard, it's just like a, a live presentation. It's it is literally live. It's 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 not, you know, the same as live to tape where you're wondering, OK, what are they going to edit out and how are they going to edit this? Um, if it's live is live, whether it's TV or a speaking engagement. To be honest, TV or a speaking in a in a in a large conference, they're both equally terrifying for me right now. Um, <laughs> what about it is equally terrifying? But for I guess you? that's I honestly don't know. Yeah, th th there's a whole conversation there that we could do, but let's not. Okay, no worries, <laughs> no problem. I don't know. I think, honestly, it's it's that being very well aware that the flashing beacon is on that door, that through there is the next hard thing that I need to do. And I think a lot of people will recognize that. For some people, it might be they're scared of video. For some, it might be they're scared of podcast. For, for some, it might be they're scared of pressing like on a social media post. It's what you should be doing next is probably the thing that scares you you know what the thing you should be doing next is. And I think that's really where I'm coming from. Right. Is I kind of know that's where I should be going next. Mm. And that's why it's scary. It's because it's real. Right. I will say what one of the things that's challenging about TV is we live in such a sound bite world is, you know, figuring out how to convey whatever the thought is that you want to convey in a really short amount of time. Yeah, that is a skill in itself and I have a tendency to ramble so I don't think they'd ask me on TV <laughs> that's why you get to host your podcast so, <laughs> yes and I let other people do the talking what does an ideal client look like for you and how do you know them when you see them oh my god um, well it certainly is not industry driven because I work with a broad spectrum of people but in terms of you know what they have in common they're smart they're curious, they are coachable, <laughs> meaning they're not going to resist a 
every single suggestion <laughs> that you you know pro offer. Um, they're ambitious. I guess there has to be an ROI when they're working for me for you. Yeah, but you know, some. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But I was... No, no worries. But I, I think, I think some people, they, I think some people would like to think that they are coachable, but then when it gets down to it, they don't realize the degree to which they just reject every single thing that you suggest. So, yeah, I, I, I like someone who is coachable. <laughs> so smart, curious, coachable, ambitious. A little competitive, but not necessarily competitive with other people, but competitive with themselves. Like they want, and I guess that's part of the driven piece, right? They want, they want to best their best. Um, and they're kind. They're kind and they're generous. That probably could go on, but I would say that that, that I, you know, pretty much encapsulates, you know, their being. In terms of industry, oh my God, it's across the board. I've, I've, I work with, you know, other coaches, I work with doctors, lawyers, um, designers, architects. I work with folks that have that own agencies. So on the coaching side, that is, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm probably missing a, a, a role or a industry, but I, I, I like that. I, I like the, I like the, the diversity of industries and, and particular roles. And I think that that also helps me to be a better coach because I'm able to pull from perhaps what I'm working on with someone that owns a consulting company and I'm helping to apply some of the things that worked with us there to this person who is transitioning perhaps from being a therapist that's used to working under the guidelines of, you know, the, the therapy discipline, but now they're gonna switch to coaching so that they don't have to have those strict medical uh, guardrails, if you will. So I, I like the diversity. Yeah, I think it, it it is very diverse, but you've also got a very clear psychographic profile there. So you do have a niche to an extent. They have to be positive people moving forwards. No, they they're not interested in standing still. Yes, uh, and they have to be. I totally get that. So I would like to ask you about your events, the um, dinner series, because that's a little bit unusual. I think I know lots of people do. Masterclasses, speaking books the dinner series i'm really intrigued by how did that come about i love telling this story um it came about because i was working with a coaching client and i'm going to share these details only because i think some people would hear these details and and wonder well why would that person need to work with a financial coach and so this is also a way of dispelling an idea that you have to that financial coaching is only for a certain group of people and some people may feel like they don't fit it. So let me be more descriptive here. So I was working with a, uh, with a client who is an attorney, a general counsel of a publicly traded company. And something came up that was out of my scope and I referred her. And the person that I referred her to, she was just like, oh, my God, thank you so much. He was the best. And so she shares this with me in our subsequent call. And in that subsequent call, she was like, I don't know what I would have done if you weren't here and if you didn't, you know, suggest him to me. She goes, I think I would have gone to the Yellow Pages. Now, let's keep in mind that we don't even really have Yellow Pages any longer. But, you know, <laughs> it's the it's the thought, the the, the equivalent would be going to Google, right? 
And I thought to myself, yeah, spin the wheel. Yeah, I thought to myself, really? Like I had, I had enough, you know, um, decorum not to say what was in my head. But in my head, I'm like, really? That would have been your option when you think about again all of the things on paper. And what she said, I don't remember exactly what I said. I, I just know I didn't say the really part. Um, but I, I did say something, and her response to that was, well, you know. I could talk to my friends about sex all the time, but I don't talk to them about money. And that was not the first time I'd heard that, but it just landed with me in a much different way. And it landed with me from the standpoint of what would it look like to create a space where, again, smart, highly educated people, high earners, who the outside world would look at them and think they don't have any questions, they don't have any challenges, they don't have any frustrations, but they do. And they are afraid to raise their hand and say that they do because of other people's perceptions. So the idea for the dinner came about from the standpoint of wanting to create a safe space for us to have vulnerable conversations. And um, we're now going into our fifth season, our fifth year of doing it. And I just totally love it. Each month is a different theme to reflect the fact that money impacts our lives and our businesses in a variety of ways. Um, you know, when we're in person, we have a little private section of a restaurant, which also helps to foster a little bit more transparency. And I think, you know, quite frankly, sometimes people are able to be much more open than they with strangers or near strangers than they perhaps are with people that are even really close to them. So that's what the genesis of the dinner was and why I love it. <laughs> so I, I have a few detailed questions because I'm really intrigued about how this could be something that other people can take away and, and use in some way. How many people are you usually having along for these dinners? So at the restaurant, anywhere from seven to 10, because we need at least seven people in order mm -hmm. to have the private section. And I cap it at 10 because then after that, it really makes it difficult for everybody to kind of participate and join. And are you doing this, again, this is a super nosy question, so feel free to not answer it. But are you doing this as a revenue generating exercise or is this sort of more networking, marketing, positioning? I call it a break even lead generation. So for the first Perfect. two years, you know, I underwrote it in terms of I charged people, yes, but it took, you know, some time to find a rhythm in terms of, you know, getting a, a restaurant, like just one place where we were going, um, figuring out the menu, the pre-fee menu and the price point. So at least I was getting my meal, you know, covered. And now that is the case, but it's not a profitable offer. And that's one of the things that I talk about, you know, when I'm working with people, you, you got to look at your portfolio of offerings and you need to know what is the job of each of your offers. So for me, it is a paid lead generation offer. It's not profitable, but also at least it's break even and at least it pays for me. I think relationships are profitable. And what you've done there, if I, if I look at some of the best conferences I've been to, the speakers I can often take or leave if I'm honest it's the relationships that you build at those conferences it's the dinners it's the spending the evening in the bar with amazing people you've taken that and you've just productized that which I love 
Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I didn't mean to cut you off. But the other thing that I love about it no. are the relationships that the guests have formed amongst themselves outside of the dinner experience. And how far afield are they coming from? Are they sort of within your sort of business neighborhood, or are they traveling further afield? Well, that's a really interesting question because when I originally started it. The idea was to alternate between having a dinner in Brooklyn versus having one in, in, in Manhattan. And I ended up very quickly moving it exclusively to Manhattan because I started, you know, getting people from Philadelphia, from Upper Westchester. And depending upon, you know, where, where your audience is listening from, there may not that those distances may not mean much. But what I can say is those places, in some instances, are like two hours away from New York. So I didn't want to have people travel yet another 30 minutes or so to Brooklyn. So that's why we ended up with a lovely place that hopefully we will return in 2022, maybe, <laughs> um, in Manhattan. But, but I've had people, I had one person fly in from Dallas, Texas for a dinner. That's the longest distance I've had. But I've had people come from different states, for sure. Yeah, I think half of my audience is in the U.S., so the, the distances will make sense. And I think putting two hours on it, that gives everybody context. I think that's a, a really, really nice idea and something that a lot of people could emulate very, very easily. People are at the heart of every business. And being around people who are on the same journey if you're a business owner, entrepreneurial isolation is just normal. Mm -hmm. um, unless you intentionally go out to spend time with people that you have these things in common right. with. So I love that idea. So I want to ask you about your podcast. How long have you been doing that? Oh, let's see. I started it in 2019. So this is a really good example about relationships. <laughs> Let me get the timing right. In the beginning of 2018, I had appeared on a show on Sirius XM. One of the producers of that show was like, hey, we want you to come on Karen Hunter's show. I was like, okay. Fast forward, I saw this person, of all places, on the subway sometime in the fall. And they're like, yeah, 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 we want to get you on Karen's show. I'm like, okay, just let me know. So finally, so if, if, if I was on the one show in February, because it was, it was an event for Black History Month in February of 2018, I got on Karen's show on January of 2019. And afterward, she's like, you want a podcast? And I was like, well, I've thought about it, but not really, because I know how much work podcasts are. So I was like, I don't know if I really want to add that to my plate. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, come up with come up with an idea and um, we'll produce it. And so I have the beautiful blessing of having, you know, Karen Hunter and her team from Sirius XM as the producers of my podcast. And so we've been at it since April of 2019. And I will readily admit that it has taken a minute to kind of find my groove and my rhythm and try to figure out you know, how different is this from everything else that I do to finally land on? It's not. It's just a different di distribution channel. So it's okay if I'm talking about the same thing, but someplace else and perhaps in a, a different way. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's how it's going. And 
I um, recently started doing a Black Business Roundtable, and I'm really having a lot of fun with that. Mm. That's some serious help you've got with your podcast, I must say. It really is. And I, I, do, uh, I do not take that lightly because I do know other folks that, you know, do everything themselves or, you know. Oh, blood, sweat and tears. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I, am, I am quite, 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 quite grateful that you know my job is to come up with the content record it and they you know they gave me this um for context right i am a huge npr listener have been since i was a little girl because that's what my mom would listen to um but so they gave me one of these little boxes that makes me feel like i'm like a an npr field reporter with the recorder and the microphone (laughs) i love it Is that a, like a, a Zoom thing they gave you? No, it's not Zoom. No, I don't record on Zoom with them. I record on, I don't even know what the word is, but it's its, it's a microphone, a, a task cam, I guess it's called. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that. so uh, yeah, I record on that. And i they gave me two microphones so that, you know, the, well, the idea was, you know, when you're traveling, you can do um, interviews, you know, at the conferences at which you're speaking and as you can see, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so maybe when, when things return. So has the podcast has the podcast had much of an impact on your business yet? Or is it sort of more of a, a passion project right now? So if I'm measuring it from the standpoint of has the podcast led to revenue, the answer to that would be no. Like I, no one has reached out and said, well, I shouldn't say that. People have reached out who have listened to the podcast, but they have not necessarily become clients. So if I measure it from that standpoint, the answer is no. If I measure it, though, from the standpoint of recognizing not everybody is going to get on my email list, not everybody is going to go to my website and read my blog, not everybody is going to you know, follow me on Instagram or LinkedIn and Twitter, and I look at it, as I said, as a, an additional distribution channel, knowing that there may be instances where there's overlap, but in others there isn't, then I say in terms of extending my reach, then absolutely, yes. Jaquette, I'm looking at the time and thinking, we have been going for quite a long time. <laughs> if people are listening and thinking, I need to sort my money out, I need that Jaquette to help me, how would you like them to connect with you? Oh, my goodness. They can go directly to my website, jaquettetimmons.com. And um, if you're interested in any of the upcoming events, just go to the section where we talk about what's coming up, (laughs) whether it's a dinner, although the dinner series is on hiatus until the new year, um, or the next pricing masterclass, which is on December 10th. Or if they're into um, social media, they can follow me on Instagram. Just put my name in the search bar because I'm very, very, very active on uh, Instagram. I will go and find you in a few minutes. Jaquette, I need to ask you the same question I ask everyone. And it's really interesting to hear all the responses. There's probably a book in the responses. But what's one thing you do now that you wish had started five years ago? Ooh, I think I wish... I was going to say take some time because I realized I didn't warn you about this in the beginning. No, 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 no worries. I did listen to a couple of your episodes. So 
I recall that this was a question I just hadn't uh, recalibrated for it being here. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, the answer would be to stop personalizing the nose. And we kind of talked about this, you know, at the beginning or earlier in our conversation when we were talking about fear and rejection. And if there's one thing that I can, you know, take a moment and leave your audience with is an exercise that I ask all of my entrepreneurial and small business clients to do. And I think it might be helpful for people to reflect on. But I call this exercise five and five. And the first five, quarantine aside, is for people to think about who are the five people that they spend the most time with? And what, what are those relationships? What's the nature of those relationships? And what, it, what are the ways in which they energize you and deplete you of energy? That's the first five. The second five, who are the five people that are spending a great deal of time in your head? And that expands the pool a little bit because it can be people that you've never met. It can be people that you do know, but for whatever reason, you are no longer on speaking terms. It can be people that you love, but they're no longer living. And so, you know, they're not around, but they're still in influencing you and impacting you in terms of the way you think, the things that you do, the choices that you believe are available to you. So who are those people? What's the nature of their relationship? And again, where are they energizing you and where are they depleting you of energy? And once you've got your names written down and the relationships and all of that, ask yourself if your business were a person, which relationship would it most reflect? If your sales were a person, your sales process were a person, which relationship would it most reflect? And if the way in which you go about approaching pricing were a person, which relationship would it most reflect? That exercise is so freaking powerful. And that's what I would love for your folks to do. I think that was going to need a sheet of paper. Oh, it absolutely I needs a sheet of paper. <laughs> It absolutely needs a sheet of paper. Jaquette Timmons, you have been awesome fun. Uh, so much value in there. And I'm really grateful for your time. Have I said if people want to connect with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. But you know, there's nothing wrong with asking it again. <laughs> if they want to connect with me, no. they can go to my website, jaquettetimmons.com. And if you go to Rock Your Finances, you'll be able to see all the different services. And if you want to connect on Instagram, just put my name in the search box. Happy to connect. Awesome. Jaquette, you've been great fun thank you very much for oh my god thank you so much bob it's been a blast i really appreciate it if money matters to you then you need to get clear on why and what it really means money is a measure that's all it is it's what we use to bundle up and distribute value so if you really want to understand how to make money work for you then you need to understand your own value and that right there is some deep work before I go, just a quick reminder to subscribe. And if you haven't already, and why haven't you, then join my Facebook group. You'll find a link in the show notes or just hit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders and you'll be taken right there. I would love for you to connect with me on social media. Follow me wherever you hang out. You'll find me at Bob Gentle. And if you do, message me, let me know and I can follow you back. If you enjoyed the show, then I would love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And that's Apple Podcasts specifically, because that's the best way to help me reach new subscribers. My name is Bob Gentle. Thanks again to Jaquette for giving us her time this week and to you for listening. And I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.